If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, and it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Andrew Boosie. He is a serial entrepreneur with a focus on building products. He created the first web-based chat systems and the first chat with the customer service rep option and many other early e-commerce, social, and gaming platforms. He most recently founded Convertible to make it easy for big brands to build experiences on Facebook Messenger, Twitter, Alexa, Google Assistant, and other next-generation conversational platforms. He has 26 patents and one novel, Accidental Gods. He has a computer science degree from Duke University and an MBA from Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks. I'm excited to chat. Well, I, I've, I read uh, your book, uh, Accidental Gods. Of course, we know each other in, in, in real life, but I did read the book. I'd love to start talking there before we get into AI. Tell me Great. the whole premise about the book and why you wrote it, because I think it's fascinating. I mean, the book is kind of about my views on AI in some ways. Um, I started thinking a lot about, you know, both from a philosophical point of view, you know, there's all sorts of things to think about in religion and where we come from and, and why. And then there's also kind of the converging point of view of what is intelligence and how does it exist. And, and so the book is really about, well, how, what would happen if, if there were things that we created that were like us that had in, intelligence and sentience and awareness but but weren't aware of us and how would that play out and so that was kind of the premise of, of the book which kind of conveys a lot of my views on certain areas of artificial intelligence as well but but also kind of where we came from and then since writing that book there's been kind of a lot more broad conversation about simulation theory and are we living in a simulation and those types of things that have kind of dovetail with with a lot of the book as well yeah because you wrote that a while ago yeah i pub i self-published it in 2014 i think and i yeah. wrote it mostly in like 2009 so where do you think we came from uh, I, I think statistically speaking there's a high probability we're living in a simulation of some sort um mostly on the theory that i think in some at some point in the future we'll be able to build a simulation that's roughly as complex as as we are so I'm, well, that's always the, the argument, but to, to just flip it around, um, that all begins with the assumption that um, consciousness is a, prop, a programmable property, and the fact that we experience the world is programmable, and that we're basically machines ourselves, I mean, it doesn't that assume a certain view. I mean, because I, a character in a video game right now doesn't experience the game, correct? Certainly not as we would understand it. And yet we experience the world. So why, why, why is that not kind of proof that we're not in the simulation? Well, I think we're still early in the process. I mean, you know, we've only really been thinking about hard problems for, you know, best case, 6,000 years, you know, worst case, a few thousand less. Depends on, you know, sort of when you view a lot of this stuff. 
stuff in Egypt starting. I, I think, you know, that's not very much at time in the grand scale of our understanding of the universe and, you know, which is also somewhat constrained still. And so I think, you know, we, and, and we're, our, our advancement of technology really ha- has only been happening at the level that we're talking about right now with computers and games and simulations at all that have that type of complexity or, or any remote semblance of that type of complexity for, you know, less than 100 years and more like 30 or 40, um, <clears throat> 50 maybe at the most. So we're, I, to think that we've even touched the the beginnings of, of what can be done with technology is, I think, kind of a... But the, the, no. the basic assumption there is that uh, an iPhone and a person are the same type of thing. Maybe on yeah. orders of magnitude difference in scale, but the same basic computational device in a way. Is that true? I mean, in a very simplified level that I might agree to that. I think that, you know, humans are computational and, and brains are effectively a type of, of computer. I mean, I think they're much more co- complex and, you know, we obviously don't really understand how the brain works either. So, um, I, you know, it could turn out that there's things that we just don't understand yet that exist in the brain that are a big part of what gives us consciousness and self-awareness, which I think are the sort of the defining traits of at least as, you know, you describe them as sort of seeing and understanding the world and, and, ha- and having a sense of place in it. I think that, I think, <clears throat> I think that's pretty, that's a pretty interesting way of viewing the world. And I think that it's going to be a, it's going to be a while before you really understand how the brain is, is creating that and whether, you know, what that really means. Right. So it could turn out that like in the brain, there's some, you know, type of quantum computation, for example. I mean, I don't think that's necessarily what it'll be, but at the, the neuron level that we just don't really understand, it could be that, you know, the, because neurons are, you know, not as binary as a neuron or is represented in a neural network that, you know, things are, and, and it's more adaptable in different ways than we really understand. Those could all be different types of, of computational machinery that we just have not figured out yet. Right. Like, I mean, just take neural networks, for example, when they, when neural net, the original neural network designs were created in, you know, I guess like the late fifties and you know, that, they were kind of discarded because they didn't really do anything mostly because they couldn't perform at an efficiency level that delivered any value. And then, you know, in, in the beginning of the two thousands, people started trying to, you know, do these, trying to run neural networks again, trying to run them on new CPUs and then new GPUs. And they're like, Holy crap, these things do some pretty amazing things. If you put them on fast enough, um, computational systems that are designed to do that type of processing, which, you know, GPUs are much better at linear algebra than CPUs. Turns out that, you know, you can build even better, more specialized hardware for processing tensors, which is a lot of what, you know, like Google GPUs and what NVIDIA is doing with TPUs. Those things make these neural networks orders and orders of magnitude faster. They allow, um, you know, more complex forms of neural networks to be created. They allow things like back, backward propagation to work, which really helps make neural network training much better. Those things just weren't even possible when the neural network idea was conceived. And now because computation has advanced enough that these mathematical functions can run 
orders and orders of magnitude faster, we're seeing all sorts of new ways to use them. And that's what's really causing the machine learning kind of explosion that we're seeing right now. And I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. Well, I'll just ask one more question about consciousness. Uh, and then and then let's let's move on. But right now, would you agree we don't really have the idea that matter can experience the universe? We don't really have a way to kind of I don't think we have a way to think of that scientifically. My my hammer doesn't experience the nail, you know, it doesn't and yet just the idea that inanimate matter can have a first person experience just seems so uh implausible and it sounds like what you're saying is uh somewhere in the brain we're going to figure out how that happens even though we don't really have any way to understand it right now but isn't that kind of a punt on the question just i like that's an well, article I, that we we shall know when we understand the brain it will all be made clear yeah so i'm happy to to deviate from punning so i mean i think there's a couple of i mean to unpack what you what you said i mean i would argue that computers are not inanimate ma matter in the same sense that the hammer is right so i mean things are passing through a computer right it understands time i mean it maybe it doesn't understand it but it uses time and time is a core function of its mechanics just like human the the human mind right so like there's there's a lot of things for example we don't understand about time and i think time is probably pretty critical to consciousness because you can't really understand yourself um you can't build predictive models of what the what you're going to do and how you're going to act if you if you don't have an understanding of that there's something's going to happen in the future and you can't learn things if you don't understand things that have happened in the past and so things like time are you know, happening in the physical world. And there's things, you know, in our, in our brains, chemicals and electrical signals and all sorts of other stuff that are analyzing the, the data that our sensory organs, like our, you know, eyes and skin and nose and ears and whatever are detecting. And they're accumulating lots of data and computers can do, you know, big parts of that part. They take that data, they put it, you know, they send your visual <clears throat> what your eyes see and they process that data and sends it gets sent to your, you know, your brain and your visual cortex. And then you do something with it. Right. So we kind of lose, I think our deep understanding when we start to get to why are we doing certain things and that, you know, it gets, you can diverge down a lot of conversational paths there. Like, you know, well, do we have free will? Or are we stuck in kind of a, you know, is the universe kind of just ticking along and we're just kind of riding it and we're, we just process that in a different way that makes us feel like we have free will and choice. I, I think those are unknown questions and we just don't have the data, but I do think that it's not, you know, say, saying, comparing the brain to a hammer and saying that it's an inanimate object is not you know, a fair comparison to even like your iPhone and, and human brain example. I mean, your iPhone is not an inanimate object. It's doing things like, I mean, it'll, you know, it's not necessarily smart and self-aware and, and analyzing the universe around it. But if you applied, you know, kindergartner level um, observation to it, it might look that way. Like it might pop up, you know, I might get a notification at some point that says, hey, you know, Duke is about to play a basketball game. You might want to watch that on ESPN. Well, that seems like it's aware of things around it, right? I mean, even though it's, we, we understand that that's just programming and that's just pulling data from all sorts of data sources 
it does look like it gained, it, you know, it observed some data feed somewhere that said the Duke game was coming. It knows that I want to watch Duke games and it notified me of that fact, right? So in some ways, that's not that different than a lot of things that humans do. Fair enough. Um, you mentioned Duke. When did you graduate from college? Man, you're gonna make me feel old. 93. So you and I are basically the same age. I'm 50. You must be about 48. 47. 47. So back in 93, when you were at Duke and you were studying computer science, what was, what was the skinny on artificial intelligence? So I actually, I almost went to UPenn undergrad in a AI curriculum that was computer science and psychology. I, I think that at the time, AI was much different. There were, you know, people thought you could kind of program things to make decisions using you know, more kind of expert, expert system, systems, yeah. dichotomy, kind of dich- more complex, but dichotomous tree kind of things. Um, so there was stuff like Lisp and things like that. And it never, it didn't, it wasn't, I think, the same as the situation that we have now, which, you know, has changed a lot because because of basically just computational speed, data and networks none of those things were really that amazing when I graduated. Right. So there was the internet, (laughs) there was no, you know, Google, when I graduated, there was no Yahoo, there was no Google, there was no internet browser. Um, I had a mosaic Mosaic came out in March of 93. So you, you know, that you're right. I wasn't, I was in fact the product manager for mosaic at spyglass. That was my first real job. So I, um, in uh, Champaign, Illinois. So I, you know, right as the commercialization of the internet happened, Mosaic was developed, you know, by uh, uh, Mark Andreessen and a a bunch of other people at uh, the National Center for Supercomputing Applications at the University of Illinois. And, you know, as a, as a way of basically creating a, 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 a more interesting and amazing client to access the World Wide Web that, you know, had been created at CERN. Really, and it was a lot about adding graphics and imagery to it that made it much more compelling to people. And so that was a pretty big leap forward for getting people to use computers and networks. Yeah, and if you think about it, what's what's always interesting to me about the Internet is, as you've just kind of implied, it's kind of big and dumb. All it is is computers communicating on a common protocol. And yet, think about what it did to society in 25 years. It created $25 trillion in wealth, a million businesses. It transformed media, politics, I mean, so many things. What, how do you compare the impact of, of narrow AI, just what we know how to do now, just machine learning? Is it going to have an effect equal to that, massively more? Like, how big of a deal do you think? Again, no, no big breakthroughs, just plain old ML uh, like we know how to do now. Just machine learning-based computer vision will change the world. We'll talk about that. In a, way a, that, in a way, in ways that I think people just can't conceive. Well, you know, I, I, wanted, I want you to run with that. But, but you're right, because 25 years ago, we all looked at the web, and none of us thought Uber. You know, none of us thought Etsy. None of us thought eBay, open source, Wikipedia, Google. You know, eventually you do, because, you know, it kind of gradually dawns on you. So, but you're like, one of those forward-thinking people I know. So you tell me what uh, what computer vision alone is going to do to the world. So I think computer vision alone will change. I mean, just if you apply just computer vision to just human faces, 
So imagine that any camera anywhere in the world is connected to the internet and that, you know, given what we understand of databases and availability of information just from Facebook and Google, that you can basically look, you can, it's not that hard in my view anyway, to imagine a world where you're immediately identified anytime a camera sees you. And I think that technology basically exists today. It's basically, you know, the databases are not quite there yet. The computer vision is not quite there, but it's clear that it's going to get there. It's not like a wild leap. But people are still, I think, in a little bit of denial that that's going to happen because that fundamentally changes privacy. It fundamentally changes everything. Like if you if you imagine like politics is an easy one. Like imagine that you go to a political fundraiser or any event that has to do with politics where people are inevitably someone's trying to get money from someone. If you could wear a pair of glasses that were like, you know, Google glasses, but look cool and didn't look like they had a giant camera on them, which again, technologically not that hard. Like even if you just look at like the, the Snapchat glasses, spectacles, um, you know, something like that, that looks, you know, less of troops less obtrusive and less, less like sunglasses and can show things on the, on the lens, which again, not technically challenging, scan an entire room, suck in every face in the room, quickly look in a database, identify everyone, pull every piece of public information on each of those people. You could probably see the net worth of 90% of them because a lot of that data is on the internet already, especially if they're like, you know, public figures or they've ever been on an S1 or any sort of SEC filing. Lots of data that exists in the world today is terrifying if people actually realize how easy it was to get to in like three steps but like once there's a real incentive to pull that data together and deliver it in cohesive ways like tying it to a facial recognition it's pretty scary and so to me like there's going to be all sorts of things that are both good and bad that come out of that that i think people just haven't really imagined yet and so there's probably a bunch of amazingly cool use cases like you're you know like an uber or a Google or an Amazon types of things and lots of companies will get created like that, that we just haven't thought of yet. And, you know, but I think the combination of instant facial recognition by basically any straight, you know, any camera tying that to the degree of data sources that exist on the internet today is going to create a, a bunch of unintended consequences and, you know, both positive opportunities and some probably pretty negative things that I think most people just don't imagine. Well, let's talk about it a little bit. You're right. I mean, I agree wholeheartedly that privacy has always kind of been guaranteed in a way because there's just so many people doing so many things, making so many phone calls, and there's just no way to watch everybody. But with with cameras able to read lips as well as a human, uh, not only can those cameras, like you said, recognize everybody, but essentially listen to what everybody says they can listen to every cell phone conversation, right? Voice to text. Yep. They can read every email. And and, the, and it doesn't even take nefarious tools to put all that together. It's the same tools that you use to look for cures for cancer, right? I mean, uh, what, what do you – let's just talk about the government aspect of it for a moment. What, what, do you think that – you know, you can either speak to in the United States or in other parts of the world. Do you think that, like uh, – a government surveillance state is inevitable to come out of that because once it's able to be done, once government's able able to watch everyone, they will? Or do you think that's the kind of thing we just head off with legislation, customs, mores, and the rest? I think I think that'll be a sliding scale and I think it'll probably have a it'll it'll probably in the United States I think it will fundamentally shake people's views of what 
freedom means. I think, you know, in China, it's probably inevitable. Um, and I think, you know, China's most, you know, pretty advanced in, in all these areas of AI. And I think it's, you know, fits some of the, you know, obviously the government there is a little more aggressive on that front. I think it's going to be the places where it'll be the most impactful and, and I'm curious, I, it's, I, it's harder to predict the outcomes are places like the UK, which already have, um, pretty comprehensive coverage with cameras. So, <clears throat> so like CCTV in the UK, you know, gives you, gives the government a pretty comprehensive degree of visual coverage right now that, you know, the United States doesn't have. And the United States probably won't have for a while, if ever, because, you know, many of the problems that we have in the U.S., like people complain that, you know, our Internet's not as fast as it is in Korea or whatever else is, you know, caused by the fact that the U.S. is just big and spread out and doesn't have kind of the coherent full stack government that like China has, but in the UK where it's smaller and CC, you know, CCTV has been kind of part of the culture and the system for a pretty long time. It's already there. Right. So it's like, it's not a big step to like pump all that data into something that recognizes every face, matches it up with the name. And so you could, you know, in a couple of years type in somebody's name and immediately see the last CCTV, TV camera they pass, know exactly where they are, track them in real time across multiple CCTV cameras. It's hard to say that um, repeatedly, but um, that that gives you all sorts of, of of things that are both very powerful if used in the in the right way to stop you know crime and terrorism and things like that, but also have you know huge opportunities to abuse. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I had a guest on the show. Uh, um, you might know him, Jared, from uh, Argo Design here in town. Uh, and he said that it will be, he thinks we'll return to something like the Victorian era, uh, where you live in this little village with 300 people, and you know everything about everybody. Just because, you know, gossip and it's a small town and everybody sees everybody come and go. But you were polite enough never to mention what you knew to them. So you had kind of this bifurcated set of, you kind of like your public knowledge where, but then you, then you had this kind of other layer where you kind of knew every, all, all the dirt on everybody. Um, so do you, I guess I'm, I'm working up to ask the question, do you think we should just kind of, and we'll just talk about the U.S., give up on privacy or... Or, or not, because on the other hand, I think whenever I go through a toll booth, I know it takes a photo of my license plate, right? It, in theory, could start tracking everywhere I went. And that license plate thing could be, you know, look, hooked up to databases of deadbeat dads and outstanding warrants and everything else. Um, and they could just keep police there all the time to go after people as they pass through. I mean, it would be a disincentive to use the toll road, I assume. But, um, but so we haven't really done those things. We don't have, we don't have traffic cameras at every corner in this country. Is that just because we have kind of a knee-jerk aversion to it, or the technology is just not there yet? I think, for whatever reason, I don't understand, and I haven't done the research on 
on why there's you know such a degree of penetration of like CCTV in the UK and and versus here. I think partially it's hard to do. It's you know it's harder to do in a broad system. Like I mean, the United States has a lot of accidental checks and balances with the sort of combination of city, state, and federal. It's hard to just get, get your act together to do any of those things. Um, so like putting up putting cameras on every corner. If the federal government tried to do that, the states would would react negatively. The cities would react negatively. I think the cities are, you know, put up traffic cams to look for people running red lights and stuff like that, and they're able to get away with that as a, you know, a safety feature. And you know, on toll roads, it's a convenience feature. And I think people have really not fully thought through the downstream effects of that and so they haven't the fight against them hasn't really started but i think if they were at it if they started just randomly adding sort of cctv level coverage everywhere that there would be a pretty significant up in arms kind of reaction and i think partially that's because it's so later in the process there's a much higher level of sensitivity around privacy especially in the united states i do disagree with the the victorian era model of that you know there's going to be a you know a little village of 300 people i think there'll be villages of 300 people that are off the grid well no i think what he meant is that because of social media we know everybody's dirt and it will develop a new morality you know if if somebody yeah yeah, i think i understand all right that i i don't i just don't agree i actually like i don't know maybe he just doesn't use the internet as much as me or he never uses reddit but that doesn't seem to be the morality that's evolving in these communities right Um, and maybe it's different when it's real people i think we're more likely like i I actually the thing that has that i thought was going to happen for a pretty long time that just hasn't happened yet is I, i actually have expected that somebody in you know some industrious real estate developer will eventually go do this and they'll find some random place maybe it's a university town like you know waco or champaign urbana in illinois or whatever that's a really small smaller city than you know like an austin or dallas or whatever and they'll build like a five thousand unit apartment complex it doesn't have any windows it just has fast internet and it'll be dirt cheap and basically lots of people will just go live there and they'll mostly just live in their rooms doing things online and we're, I don't think we're quite to the point where that level of is viable from a financial point of view, both from the building it and the will come t- style, but also because it's just not as easy as we would imagine to make money on the internet for an average person. But I think it's kind of moving in the direction where we'll start to see some more and more opportunities to do that in the future. I also think we'll see movement towards things, maybe not true basic income, but things like that um, over the next, pro- that's probably a longer horizon thing and a side effect of machine learning and AI, but where people are sort of like disenfranchised. And so they're making enough that they can go live in, you know, a, an apartment-ish type of, of, of place that's not, you know, maybe in a major hub, but gives them internet and everything else. And people just disappear into games and other online things. And that's going to be a major change in, in the stratification. Uh, not really. I mean, it doesn't mostly cause I don't view it as bad. I mean, like I think some people view people that like, if you, if you imagine somebody sitting around playing a game, playing games online all the time, and that's really all they ever did. Some people would view that as, as a depressing and sad thing. I, because I, you know, I, 
grown up playing games. I love playing games. I've, you know, made game companies and games. I, I don't, I don't view it. I don't view gaming, for example, as negative. And I think we're going to see things like, you know, esports create huge opportunities for people who play games to to make money online. But at, you know, not just at the, you know, I'm the LeBron James of Fortnite, like you know, like maybe Ninja is makes you know millions and millions of dollars a year. There's obviously going to be people like that. But there's going to be lots of opportunity for you know esports coaches and you know all sorts of other things that arise as games become more mainstream and accepted and as you know they become a path out of sort of a jobless kind of reality that you know if, if we see the <clears throat> i don't and i don't know for sure this is going to happen and this is you know maybe a little dystopian but if ai for example somehow magically solves a bunch of problems like let's say we we took 100 solve autonomous driving and delivery so we no longer need truck drivers and we solve autonomous restaurants somehow and we don't need people like so if you took away all the tellers drivers and restaurant people in the united states and and maybe all the retail people you, you know you're like half the population of you know earners are suddenly don't have jobs because of machine learning and ai related things and again i'm not saying that's going to happen but let's say you know even if it's 20% those people are going to have to ha find something to do and they're going to have to get either reeducated and moved somewhere else assuming there are you know new opportunities and that they're willing to be reeducated re but even if they're not they're going to we need to find stuff for people to do and new opportunities. And based on kind of my interaction in the gaming world that I see on a regular basis, that's maybe different than what's reported. There's people making reasonable amounts of money. Like I, you know, I occasionally hire people to, you know, play certain games with because it's just easier than spending hours looking for random people. If I can find a pseudo professional, that's really good. that can help me through stuff. And, you know, lots of those people are like veterans that are like, I, I played a lot of games with a guy who is amazingly good and, and fun to play with. And, and you know, that's a, a veteran between jobs and he's just trying to make a few bucks. And so as that becomes more structurally integrated into gaming and esports, and it becomes more of a, you know, socially acceptable thing. So there's a lot of people in the gaming community that think that type of thing is hugely negative. I disagree, but, um, but as that becomes sort of more accepted, you know, kind of like, you know, I mean, it's like, it's to me, it's sort of like if I wanted to go to like basketball camp with like Steph Curry and I pay like whatever, and I go for a week long basketball camp, like, why is that like bad? I mean, I know I'm not a professional basketball player, but maybe I like to play basketball and it's a dream to be, or, or, you know, desirable for me to play with someone who's amazing. Um, so all those things are, are kind of evolving and they're moving in a direction that I think is, is under the a little like just a little under the cover of what people think about and see on a regular basis well i want to put a pin in in the job one because well let's talk about that for just a minute because if you went back to 93 when mosaic came out and you went to people and said hey you know in 25 years this thing's gonna have billions of users you know what's that going to do to employment there were plenty of people who said well you know the stockbrokers are gone the newspapers are gone, the yellow pages are gone, the travel agents are gone, and they would have been right about everything. But nobody gets all the new stuff. So would you, I'll ask you a very direct question. Has the internet created or destroyed more jobs? I don't actually know the answer to that. I'm sure there is an well, answer. Well, we've maintained, 
full employment throughout the internet yep. era. So it can't have been dramatically one way or the other. Yeah, I think it's probably a pretty neutral, but like I think something like Amazon has a lot of downstream job creation around mm -hmm. delivery systems and logistics and you know the 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 things that have lots of jobs, those are somewhat threatened by true autonomous vehicles and things like that, like delivery and like if you just look at like if you look at Uber as a giant job creator right now, if there's if there's truly autonomous cars, either whether it's Uber or Tesla or GM or then the cost that we, of, that we don't know about Waymo. Then the cost of delivering goes way down, and then all kinds of new businesses are created that take advantage of this autonomous car fleet, right? Maybe. I mean, in fact, if I were to show you, I think the half-life of a job is 50 years. I think all jobs vanish. I think 50% uh, of all jobs vanish every half century. And if I were to show you 250 years of unemployment data for this country, and I said, Andrew, find where electricity came out. Find where the assembly line came out. Show me where on that thing uh, we replaced all animal power with steam power. You you can't even see a move in the line, even a little bit. And the assembly line? So I had this theory, and, and you're, you're a smart guy, so tell me what's wrong with it, that all technologies that increase productivity always increase wages. Because all, all, all increases... And wages come from people being able to use technology to do more. And so we kind of, there's an infinite number of jobs because the minute you empower people to do more, more people do more and they're more productive. So the nail gun didn't end the need for carpenters, forklifts didn't end the need for warehouse workers. And it's like never once happened. So why would this one be different? Yeah. I mean, that's always the question, right? This time it's different. And I, I think that the thing that's different this time, and I don't know, again, I'm not, I don't have a particularly strong view on what's actually going to happen. I think there are plenty of places where jobs could be created. And I think, you know, growing wages is different than job creation. So it's also possible that there's, you know, lots of places where new jobs could be created <clears throat> that are, you know, service jobs that, maybe suck up higher, you know, some of the wages from the, from some people getting higher wages or wealth creation or whatever. But I think that, I think we are, you know, entering an era where things might be different, right? So like the, th all the things that you described, none of those things. So I, <clears throat> backing up for one second, uh, at the high level, you know, the words like machine learning and AI are, you know, have a lot of marketing and nebulous meaning to them. But one thing that, you know, differentiates those things in my mind, AI, AGI, like true autonomy, that's probably a long way away. And it's a, to me, if we, if we actually achieve that as a fundamental civilization changer, whereas machine learning, I think is more, you know, has pretty, you know, potentially big impacts on society, but doesn't sort of totally refactor our, civilization as we know it so if you think of machine learning though it does have that word learning in it which is really you know true in that it you know a true machine or any true machine learning system is absorbing tons of data and doing something with that data in hopefully a reasonably smart way whether it's identifying who it saw in a video camera or that it's supposed to turn right and so it's those vertical ai you know use cases that are not, you know, general intelligence and crazy, like, you know, pop culture AI, 
these machine learning use cases like autonomous cars and, you know, robot pizza delivery people and, you know, drones that bring stuff to your house and, you know, sort of dark warehouses that just pack and pick everything. Those eliminate huge, huge swaths of jobs that are, I think, harder to replace, right? And so if assembly lines made things easier, so it increased productivity, it didn't replace workers. Some of the machine learning use cases actively replace people with machines, which has not been done before. So when you move from horse-drawn carriages to trucks, the truck carries more things, but it still needs a human. When you take the next step to it's an autonomous truck, and there's a robot that loads it from a dark warehouse and a robot that unloads it at you know a local distribution center before another robot puts it into an autonomous car that takes it to the person's house that ordered it, you can, you've removed humans from everywhere in the loop. And sure, there's going to be jobs created in the companies that make the robots and the autonomous, the autonomous trucks, but, and there's going to be people that build these warehouses. So in the short term, probably the job hit will not look as big, but I think there's some risk that longer term, it's a significant change. I think the biggest problem with the internet is you don't know what's true and what's not. Is there going to be a solution to that? Or is there not really yeah. objective truth? Uh, man, that's a total. Uh, <laughs> I think there. I think for some things there's objective truth. I don't think for everything there's objective truth. I mean, I think there's a lot of conversations that are more philosophical and moral and ethical that don't necessarily have objective truth. Well, and, even 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 uh, maybe I overstated it. Do you think you know? There's this whole thing about did this happen or didn't it? Uh, this whole fake news phrase, word, and idea. Yep. Do you think there's a technical solution to that that could work? Because, like, is the web ever able to be self-correcting? Is it able to, like, turn things green that are true and red that are false or anything like that? Or is there always so much viewpoint, qualification, proviso, um, that I, everything's kind of... <clears throat> You know, if I take a simple statement like, um, you know, uh, uh, the smoking kills you. Then you say, well, it doesn't kill everybody. You know, it kills some people. And I mean, like everything's, everything's like qualified or is it not? Or is there a solution to a web where everybody can say anything and it all kind of looks equal in worth and merit? I think it's a very complex problem that has as much to do with humanity as it does to, to do with the web. So, I mean, like, I mean, so if a simple statement would be, you know, religion is not, is not objectively true. It's not objectively false either, probably, but it's certainly not objectively true. Whereas like is Trump in Argentina right now is objectively true. I think because it's the G20. So, um, or, you know, whatever there, there's objectively true statements about the rea about reality, both as it exists right now. And as it's recorded, like it's objectively true. If someone, if something, if someone said something and it was recorded. Right. And so whether, which opens up a whole nother can of worms, like, well, could somebody have, that and I think that we will see a time 
where there will be systems that in real time can look at somebody talking on a podium and tell you whether they're lying or they're contradicting previous statements or or there's a high degree of debate about what they said, right? So like does cancer cause cigarettes? I think, you know, is that an objective truth? I don't know, but is it, you know, statistically strongly true? Probably yes. So you could show that with a footnote. I think that we'll start to see that happen. I think there's a lot of air. I think so. For me, I I look at a lot of the political conversations as kind of equivalent to religion in some ways. People take sides and they vigorously defend their side, and they don't always have facts or reason or rationale behind those choices. And so, in those scenarios, much of those conversations are not very easily definable as objective truth. I think there's definitely things that are definable as objectively false. Especially like if you said something in the past and you contradict it, or you just say something that's just factually wrong. <clears throat> like, for example, if you were to deny the Holocaust, I mean, I'm pretty sure that that's you know objectively a lie, um, and that's provable. So there's a lot. I, I think that there we're going to see some evolution there. The problem is that at the end of the day, right now, there's no financial incentive for anyone to do that because it doesn't really help you. So if you're CNN or the New York Times or the Washington Post, you may have a high level of journalistic standards and integrity, but you still have some headline writer who's writing headlines that I would I would view that even on the, the most prestigious news publications – are at best misleading because they're designed to get you to click something and read a story. Now, if you read the story, I think they do make a huge effort to tell the truth and, you know, make sure that it's verified, but still it's hard for the reader to fully verify everything. If it's coming from a confidential source or whatever, I don't have any vetting data on that. There's no, the computer can't have a vetting data, can't vet that because it doesn't, you know, unless the computer, unless we have AI is writing these articles, I can't like, it's a really hard problem, I guess. I, uh, I have a, I have a little trick I use, which uh, I'll pass along because I have never found it to be true, uh, uh, to be false. And that is that any headline that's expressed as a question, the answer is always no. Uh, and it sounds like a joke, but if the answer were yes, it would be phrased as a statement. You know, is something in your water killing you? The answer is going to be no, because otherwise the headline would be something in your water is killing you. Uh, and so I have found, and lots of headlines are phrased as questions. Um, or, but I, that might be true. I, I actually don't. I haven't thought about that that much. But I also feel like the question mark makes people causes a FOMO event in your brain that makes you want to click it because you have to. You feel like you have to know the answer, even though the even though you know it's a trick. Yeah. So really um, uh, I'm going to give you. You know, your insights on, uh, on how technology will change social institutions, I always find uh, fascinating. So I'm just going to rattle off three or four institutions. You can pick one and tell me some way technology is going to transform it. So I'm going to go with um, religion, the family, government, education. Religion, the family, government, education. How will technology change one of those? Uh, my hope would be I'm most hopeful that it changes education because I just think there's huge opportunities to make education better. 
And I believe there's a lot of companies like Coursera and Udacity and Pluralsight. I mean, there's a ton of money being spent on the commercial edge of education and it's bleeding into traditional education. Like, like I think coding boot camps, like they're a good way to find people and that, that are good engineers that are basically people that started down a different path and, and, you know, took, took the initiative to sort of restart their careers and go spend, you know, a couple of months or, or whatever, depending on the program, maybe a year sort of being fully immersed in learning to code in a way that's very different than college and, you know, designed for professionals. It's, it's like a job to go through the process. It's probably, it's not easy. And, and you come out the other side and you, you know, you're probably as good as a, you know, CS graduate from a lot of places. And so <clears throat> I think that as those systems become better, they become more online, they're more accessible. Like you can get a, you get a master's in computer science from the university of Illinois, Georgia tech, several other, you know, pretty prominent schools fully online now through Coursera and edX. Um, and these are, they're like really, they're really good. And I've taken some certification classes on AI on some of those, you know, programs and, you know, via Stanford and MIT. And these are like the best, most respected educational institutions in the world. And, you know, you can basically take their classes online. A lot of them also just publish freely their, you know, class content. That makes everything accessible. And I think that's going to have a huge impact, not just in the United States, but across the world as, you know, people in places like, you know, Africa and India and, you know, other places that are maybe like India has a, you know, obviously a really good college education system, but it's super competitive. So opening up these things to other people and making them accessible is very powerful. And all these platforms are collecting huge amounts of data about how people learn, how people complete these classes, what drives them. And so gamifying education in some way, even though, you know, gamification can have some, you know, negative components to it too it gets people through the process. And I think as gamification and, and kind of these models of teaching people things and using kind of the, the psychology of, of, of humans that, that, that we've learned, especially, you know, in, in gaming and these new next generation of, of education stuff is going to help people learn stuff faster and better. And that's going to also translate into people using the same, the same te- techniques at a lot of jobs. And I think that'll slowly trickle down into K through 12 education. I don't think it's there yet. I think K through 12 education for most, <clears throat> at least in the United States, hasn't changed very much in a long time. I, you know, I went to a public high school that was in the middle of nowhere in Virginia that you know, wasn't great. And, you know, I was able to go to a really good college, you know, thanks to my parents. But most of the people that went to that high school didn't get the same thing I got out of it. And that was because of my parents. But I think that, you know, as technology becomes more accessible and more available, that anyone who really wants to make the effort and, you know, maybe you don't know that you need to make the effort in the early days of your K through 12 career, but hopefully you're exposed to things and you you pick them up and you engage with something that's interesting to you and you're able to learn a lot in a way that is just not available right now in a traditional classroom environment. So I think that's going to be a, a game changer. And that so, probably trickles through to a lot of other things. Just hopping all over the map here, the Turing test, you know, can a computer and a chat bot, uh, you know, trick you into thinking it's a person? A, do you think the techniques we know how to do now, namely kind of ML, uh, are sufficient to solve that problem? And B, do you think 
that means anything if we do solve it? Uh, I have strong opinions on the Turing test. I, I mean, I think the Turing test is a marketing thing more than, I mean, kind of by accident. I think it was a good idea when it was developed. I think Turing and um, a lot of his contemporaries um, came up with a lot of really interesting ideas. I think like super intelligence and the intelligence explosion came out of, of kind of philosophical thinking about AI and, and, and the idea that computers could think. And I think those are, that was a really important step. But I think the Turing test has become a, more of a, uh, a marketing thing recently. I mean, I think it's really hard. I, I, I think it's really hard to construct a true Turing test right now. I can tell you everything I've ever tried. Every system I go to, I just ask, what's bigger, a nickel or the sun? And nothing's ever been able to answer that question. Um, do you think those kinds of simple common sense things are within? Yeah. Our- so if it's a if it's a data driven questions like that, I think we're basically there. In well, the no. The thing future. is, is that if I did this article uh, on GigaOM where um, I I had an Amazon Alexa and a Google Assistant, and I would and I documented all these questions that when you asked them the question, they gave you completely different answers. And they were things that seemingly should have been the same. How long, how many minutes are in a year? Who designed the American flag? Uh, and the like. And do you know why, like, they would answer how many minutes in a year differently? Because they're looking at different calendars? Or different one of years? them's doing a calendar year, and one of them's doing, you know, 365.25 days, and one's doing 365 days. And do you know why they said different on the flag? Because one of them was just said Betsy Ross, and one of them said Robert Heck, and Robert Heck's the guy that did the fifty-star configuration, and so it's like all questions are inherently ambiguous. Not all—that's an overstatement. Most questions are ambiguous, and a human's like, "Well, what do you mean the current the current flag or the last one?" So when I say what's bigger, a nickel or the sun, first of all, it doesn't even know if I'm saying S-U-N or S-O-N, and it doesn't know yeah. a nickel is a it's a metal, but it also happens to be a coin. A human knows what I'm asking because they're both kind of round, a nickel and the sun. And, you know, whose sun? So a human knows I'm probably not talking about a person and a nickel. Yep. So all of that kind of second-level inference that a human quickly does it, I haven't ever found a single chatbot that can. Like you go to hey, any of them. Yeah, you, ask, you ask any of the desktop assistants and none of them will even, like, Try to answer it. Yeah, it's because right now the way those assistants are built is programmatic. They're not really designed to answer those types of questions. I mean, they'll try to answer certain types of questions and you know maintain humor and the appearance of intelligence, but you know they're they're basically a new type of programming language where it's you know you're basically designing these these interfaces and. You know, so if you're talking through like Google Assistant or Siri or Alexa, you're you're talking to basically an NLP engine that's attempting to parse what you're saying and understand the intent and and extract a bunch of data out of the semantic way that you phrased whatever you said to it, and then identify the right system to feed that to, and then extract the answer. And so that leaves a lot of room for error, right? And so there's a di- 
NLP is a different problem. So NLP to me is somewhat like computer vision. I mean, it's different, but not that different, right? So if I look at computer vision and I shine a camera at a wall and it, and there's a person standing in front of the wall, you know, like it's relatively easy to spot the person. If there's a bunch of numbers written on the wall, I can probably figure out there's numbers on there and what they are, depending on how complicated it is. And, you know, but if, if a fly flies across the, the wall, it probably isn't going to know what that is if it hasn't ever been taught that, right? So these systems are not really, they're data driven, but the data is usually constrained because building up, you know, a fully open-ended sort of data gathering and system like that is expensive and hard. And so the people that are doing that type of stuff, I think the cutting edge of, of, of a lot of this is in things like deep reinforcement learning, which is like, you know, deep mind and open AI are doing where it's like, okay, well now I can, <clears throat> I can teach this computer to play Atari video games. So in that scenario, it's learning really complex things. It's adapting and building its own, system of understanding and 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 waiting and you know it's playing millions and millions of games to learn this and it's it can do the same thing with go and chess and things like that and so the reason that you see like chess was kind of the old school ai thing and now then it was go <coughs> excuse me and now it's like you know atari video games and 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 even open ai is working on dota which is a 4v4 very complex you know modern game against you know top players and and if you look at each of those games, you look at, if you think of a game like the most simple game, like tic-tac-toe, tic-tac-toe is its own universe. It has only two types of, it has, you know, only nine spots in its universe and, it, and you know, it's two-dimensional and it only has two entities, zero or O's and X's, right? And so there's a very small set of rules about your placement of O's and X's and you take turns placing those O's and X's. So it's not that hard to encapsulate that entire universe in code. It's harder to do it in chess because there's so much variability. So the game has to, the games start and, and, you know, checker, you know, there's a sort of escalating complexity of these games. And so these games are basically using a, you know, a mix of learned sort of analysis and a bunch of data to, you know, predict you know it used to be brute force prediction of moves ahead now it's a much more you know complex um algorithm go it's hard to harder even still than um chess to sort of purely build on moves ahead because there's so many very so much variability you have to construct strategies and so that's why like you read the the go um the deep mind um alpha go stuff it's like the human master grandmasters are like man i've never seen a strategy like that and that's because the computer's been you know playing it against itself for you know so many you know more games than a human could ever play and so those types of of environments those systems are very specialized but they're very complex and they're able to predict and make choices that are hard to understand from a human point of view and they get more complicated as you move up the scale. And so that's why Atari games were first. And now it's Dota, which, you know, I don't know how much you know about Dota, but you know, a, a multiplayer online battle arena game like league of legends. And you basically, it's four versus four players. There's automated, there's automated um, creatures on each side that are fighting each other. There's towers that shoot things. There's positions. There's a bunch of, sort of develop strategies around each player's role and and these you know 
OpenAI bots are like beating top tier humans, and there's fogs of there's fog of war in these games, and there's all sorts of of complexity. You have to team up, so it it, it starts to get more and more like reality but we're still nowhere close to actual reality because the variability in reality is different than the variability in a game. And, but the game games are the best representation of a subset of reality that I think that we have. And that's why they're very popular for this more general AI research. And so, you know, to tie it back to like the accidental gods, I mean, part of what drove me to write that was, I believe that we are, if we see artificial sentience or, you know, a self-aware artificial entity, you know, in the in the you know foreseeable future, I think the most likely place we will see that arrive arise is in some game like environment, whether that's a game that exists today or somebody creating a really physic physics accurate kind of small subsection of the world where they try to create entities that learn everything and do things in that environment. Those things may become self-aware or sentient in ways that we just don't understand because they're not designed to interact with humanity. I think we're further off from building things that can inter- interact and understand the complexities of English, which is really a hard language and has a lot of ambiguity. I think we're more likely to see on the, the pure language side the rise of you know more sophisticated vertical chatbots, and then you know your your intelligent agent will be like, oh, you're asking to book an airline flight. I'm gonna let you talk to my friend, the airline bot, who understands everything about booking airlines. But if you ask him, you know, the circumference of the sun, he's gonna be like, got no idea what you're talking about. Well, does that makes sense. It does. So we're running out of time here. You know, you seem like. Every time I see you, you seem like a really realistic person. You're not, you're not prone to, uh, like, like you're very level and you're not prone to like giddiness or extremism or anything like that. Uh, and so I guess the question I want to ask you is, do you, in the end, think you're a pessimist or an optimist about the future? Do you think on balance, human nature and technology are going to work to make the world better and, you know, define that as less misery and suffer, more opportunity for more people? Or are you more of a dystopian that thinks we're going to have a world where these technologies are used by the powerful to oppress the weak and the rich to oppress the poor and, and all of the rest? I think that I am... I think my views are maybe different than other people's in that sense. I, so, so it's funny because I, I asked... Uh, I randomly tweet things every once in a while. And so I, I actually asked, uh, I forget the exact words, but I, I, I posted a poll on Twitter and I described the situation and I, and then I asked, do you think this is dystopian or utopian? And there was a interesting split of answers. And so it's cause I'm working on a new, I think I told you this last time we talked at lunch, but I'm working on a new sci-fi novel that um, starts on earth, but quickly, you know, moves out into the broader universe. But it's in a it's in a hypothetical point in the in the future of Earth where you know we've developed a super uh, an artificial super intelligence or you know that arose out of a you know AG, uh, artificial general intelligence project and so that super intelligence is basically taken away military and government and everything else so everyone's provided for you can kind of do whatever you want there's no there's not really money per se anymore. There's kind of, you know, some people get some perks that other, not everyone gets. Like there's still like the only thing that really gets you really big rewards is 
being a superstar at something like movies or games or sports or music or whatever, because that's what people still really want. And, you know, you, if you want to lose yourself in drugs, you can, if you want to lose yourself in, in games or VR, you can, if you want to take a job, like the main character starts out as a librarian, like it's, she understands that it's not a job that really means anything. Like she doesn't really know why she's doing it, but she just wants an anchor for herself. And she gets a few perks because she, you know, does a job. Um, and it has some, some relevance, but like people are like, some people would be like, that's amazing, man. If I didn't have to work anymore and I could just sit around and play games all the time with, with my friends and, or, you know, if I could, disappear into a, a wildly amazing ready player one style VR or whatever. Or, you know, if I could just, you know, hang out with my friends and drink all day or watch sports or whatever. Some people are like, that's amazing. That would be perfect. Other people are like, that would be horrible. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to hear people's response to those types of, if you frame something that way, some people are like, that's utopia. I don't have to do any, I don't have to work anymore. I can just do whatever I want and it's fun. And every, you know, I get fed and I can go out and drink if I want. I can play games if I want, whatever for, for the a majority of people, those types of models are somewhat utopian and everything is clean and there's robots to take care of everything. Like there's a scene in, in the book where this guy's, you know, drunk or on drugs or something passes out in the, at a park and a robot just picks them up and carries them away. And, you know, if you didn't have any context, you're like, maybe they're going to go kill that guy. But instead the robot just takes them back to his house and cleans them up and, you know, leaves them there to wake up the next day with a hangover or maybe not a hangover because there's probably drugs to take care of that. But, but that, is that a utopia or a dystopia? And I, I don't, I don't know. I think there's a scenario, a bunch of scenarios under which this, you know, there's a, something that's utopian ish for most people. I think some people would be frustrated by that. Um, and view it as I'm being controlled by computers. Other people will be like, I have total freedom and I don't have to think about all this dumb stuff that I don't like. And so depending on who you ask, you get different answers. And I think there's a scenario where, you know, AGI or ASI or whatever doesn't develop that way. And we end up with, you know, an author, author, authoritarian government that's like uh, very abusive of power and impedes a lot of the progress towards a better life for the majority in exchange for her power for a minority. I, I, I just don't know which way it goes or there's right. probably many in-betweens. Well, Andrew, uh, what's the best way for people to follow you? Um, on Twitter, I'm just at Andrew Busey. So that's a N D R E W B U S E Y. Yes, sir. All righty. Thanks a bunch for your time. That was a fascinating hour. Great. Thanks a lot. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.